0: We are uh, in a series uh, that we're calling Questions Jesus Asked. Uh, I think there's about 300, I think there's 300 When Jesus asked a question, because he asked a lot, obviously. When he asked a question, he didn't ask it to get information... He he asked it for education purposes, not for his education, but for our education or the education of the individual of which he was asking. And so he he wanted to teach us something. He wanted to try to point out something that the individual was missing in the conversation or at least to help make sure that they knew what they needed to know, what he knew they needed to know. For example, to make this clear, uh, a question that I have not asked yet, but i probably will ask later when the time comes, uh, is when my daughter, who is now eight years old, brings home, um, when she gets a little bit older, and brings home like 25, and brings home some individual, some guy to come to our house, some scrawny, pimple-faced punk to my house, and he comes and he's in front of me, and my daughter brings him there, and she... He has him there, and I have a conversation. I'm gonna ask him this question, and maybe you're a dad and you've asked this question before, but is what are your intentions? That's the question. What are your intentions with my daughter? The truth is, I don't care about his intentions. I won't care. And in fact, because I know what he's a little boy, I know what his intentions are. I just want to ask that question to make sure he knows that if he lays a hand on my daughter, that I will kill him. That's the whole reason you ask, what are your intentions? It's I'm trying to communicate a message. That's what Jesus did with us. He's trying to communicate a message. My dad had a saying every time I got on the phone with him, if I'm driving around, this is just my dad, probably not your dad. But every time I got on the phone with him, he'd ask me what my location is. So I say, where's your location? What lo- what's your location? I'm like, I don't know, Dad. I'm by AM, PM next to the Safeway. I, why is that important? You know, I feel like, I don't know why. Maybe he wanted to try to control my life. Maybe he just wanted to know information about my life. I feel like it was my dad's way of saying, I love you, Jake. That was like his language. You know, what is your location? I love you, Jake. <laughs> I don't think it really was. But, uh, but that's the question my dad would ask me. Uh, today, Jesus asked a question uh, that we're going to tackle. Um, the question, he asked it three times, actually. Do you love me? This is a big one. Do you love me? And he was asking it to Peter. Do you love me? And this question is only found in the Gospel of John. Luke, it's not in there. Those are known as the synoptic gospels, which means they are similar The Gospel of John, I love this, about 90% of what is in the Gospel of John is not in any of the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. And this just happens to be one of those stories, one of those accounts. And so this week, I'll be honest, this was fun for me. to to study on this passage because this was a a passage I wasn't super into it in that way. And so I'm excited to share what I discovered. For example, one of the things that I discovered is that this question, this passage in John chapter 21 is all about restoration. It's all about restoration. I didn't know that at first glance. Jesus is reinstating Peter. He is giving him a second chance because Peter messed up, and he messed up big time. Jesus said he was going to mess up, and he denied him three times. And the beauty of this and the truth of this is that we all have messed up. Nobody's perfect. And if following Christ meant that you had to be perfect, this would be a very lonely room. If following Christ, coming to church means you had to be perfect, it'd be a very lonely room. In fact, I'd be the only one in here. The only one. <laughs> I love that joke. I don't know why. <laughs> All right, so let's read the passage. I've asked Helena. Helena, where are you? There you go. All right, Helena's going to read this passage, um, John chapter 21. And uh, and she's going to read this and go through verses 1 through 17.
1: For he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you.
0: Thing. Verses she read at the end we're not going to cover, but actually I think it would be good to go back um, and talk about a couple of those because what's really cool is I'm going to mention them, but I'm not going to be able to talk about the crucifixion part that she was actually reading at the very, very end of that. Um, if you're new here, kind of the way we break this down uh, is we have topically titled sermons, so Jesus qu- or questions Jesus asked, and then we walk through them expositorially which means we walked verse by verse by verse. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back to verse one that she read, and then I'm going to go through it, verse by verse, all the way to the very end of there. So let's start in verse 1. Uh, here's what it says After this, and this is uh, meaning the resurrection. So after the resurrection, that's just what happened just recently. Jesus revealed himself again, which is interesting, to the disciples. Later in verse 14, as Helena said, uh, we realize that this is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples. He revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. All right, questions. Anybody remember uh, what the Sea of Tiberius? another name for that is? Two weeks ago, I talked about it. Galilee. Oh my gosh, you guys pay attention. This is great. All right, love it. Yes, it is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he, being Jesus, revealed himself in this way. Here it is. Simon Peter, whom this passage centers around, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, which they nicknamed themselves the sons of thunder. So that's cool. And the two other, and two other disciples were together. So there are seven out of the 11 apostles. Judas has already hung himself at this point, so he's kind of out of the picture. And so we only have 11 left, and seven of them are right there with um, in this situation. Verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing, which is a good thing to do. I love fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, fun fact here, especially for your dads and if you like to fish, they were fishing at night. Nitty gritty dirt band, you and me fishing alone in the dark. And now they didn't catch anything, which is interesting, but the, which is what, this is what's cool. At night was the best time to go fishing in Galilee. And here's why. Number one, this is why they would do it. A couple reasons. One is because to bring fresh fish to the market, they didn't have refrigeration. So, how would you do that? You fish the night before so that you can deliver the fish to the market in the morning where everybody will be there. Another reason is I love this they fished by torches which torchlight And the fish were apparently drawn to the light where they could cast their net over the fish and catch them, which is pretty amazing, pretty amazing, just just for fun. Uh, But the problem here is that they're fishing in the first place. Here's what I mean by that. In Matthew 28, I don't think you read it before you came, Matthew 28, it let us know, Jesus tells his disciples to go wait for him on a mountain in Galilee. And here they are fishing. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus says, you will no longer be fishing for fish. You should go fish for men. And here they are, fishing for fish. This is Peter's former occupation. Now, don't get me wrong. Hear me correctly. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with fishing. I'm not saying there's something wrong with an honest day's work or physical labor. There's nothing wrong with any of that unless you are gifted and called to do something different by God. There's nothing wrong with an honest day's work unless you're gifted and called to do something else. Uh, About a week and a half ago, my wife and I were doing work, um, painting inside of our house in our front room, and we watched a movie while this was happening. One of the movies we threw on in the background was Goodwill Hunting. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie with a whole lot of cussing, just so that you know and there 's this crescendo moment inside of the movie where doctor like uh, dr what 's his name again? Dr. Sean McGuire and Will Hunting are having this conversation they 're having this conversation about will 's job and what he 's doing with his life and the fact that he 's a janitor and will is saying hey there 's nothing wrong with being a janitor and, and dr sean didn 't necessarily disagree, but he, he had this caveat he said yeah you 're right there 's nothing wrong with that unless you are Gifted to do something different. And in that movie, he was completely gifted, if you remember. He had like a photographic memory. He could solve equations that nobody else in the world could solve. Um, he made field medal winners feel inferior. He was gifted by God, in a sense, to do something more with his life than just to be a janitor in that sense. And so there's nothing wrong with doing an honest day's work or for fishing or anything of that unless you're called to do something different and gifted in that way. And that's the case with these disciples. And so why were they fishing? They were fishing because their leader led them to go fishing. Peter This shows right here he is a natural leader. What he goes to do, all of a sudden the other guys seem to follow. He has just sent them in the wrong direction. And so why was Peter fishing? You know, who knows? Maybe it's just all he knew. And that was comfortable to go back and do what he knew to do. Maybe he was scared to do what he knew Jesus had called him to do, to go fish for men. Maybe he was hungry and they needed to find food. I don't know. The deal is is that he was supposed to go to the mountain and he was supposed to fish for men, not for fish. And so there he is back fishing for fish and this time unsuccessfully. They caught nothing. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And just stop right here because this is a beautiful word picture. You got to catch it. Jesus In our pain, in our wandering, in our disobedience, God pursues us. He truly does. And Adam and Eve, when they made their mistake, he went looking for them and said, Adam, where are you? And he went looking for them. In this sense, he's pursuing Peter. In this sense, just like he pursues us, he's standing on the shore pursuing Peter. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, Now, this is interesting because there are times post-resurrection in God's word where disciples or others did not recognize that Jesus is who they were talking to. On Easter, we talked about this a little bit, the road to Emmaus. A couple people went with them. They had seen Jesus before. They didn't recognize him. Here they don't recognize him. Now, maybe it's distance in this situation. They're a 100 yards off is what it ends up saying. And maybe he's just a speck, and it's the morning light, and they can't have good vision. They can't quite tell who it is on the shore. But they spent three years with this guy, right? And if you've spent three years with someone, you can kind of recognize the frame of their body, even from a distance. Here's my thought. Here's my two cents on this. I believe... That Jesus, there was some significant change that happened in Jesus' appearance after the resurrection, between his resurrection body and his other body. There were recognizable features. But yet there were some differences. And if you want to, you can go look at 1 Corinthians 15 um, and t- where it talks about our resurrected bodies and a little bit about what they will be like. That there will be similarities and there will be differences. And he kind of, in that passage, Paul talks about it a little bit like a seed in a plant. You know, they have the same DNA, but they look completely different. And when we are resurrected like Christ was resurrected, we will look different. I get asked all the time when it comes to this, um, will we be able to recognize each other when we go into heaven? Absolutely. But probably the reason they couldn't recognize Jesus at that state was because they weren't in their resurrected form. And so here it is. Jesus is on the shore. They see him. They don't quite recognize who he is. And I wonder how often that happens in our situations, in our lives, where we are, you know, staring at a difficult situation. God is right there, and we don't recognize that he's right there, that he's caring for us. He's loving us in that situation, in our pain or in the busy craziness of our day, yet he's right there waiting for us, in presence with us. And that's where he is right now. He's standing on the shore, loving Peter. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, which means little ones, could be a little condescending, but I don't think it was in that that time and day. He says, Children, do you have any fish? And I love this again, because Jesus knows they've caught nothing. But yet he asked the question, why would he do that? Some people, theologians inside of there said, well, they wanted them to point out their their failure. I think it's because that's what you ask when you're fishing. So I fish all the time. I love to fish. And if a boat goes by, I cannot help but keep my mouth closed and I ask them this question: how are you guys doing? And I'm not asking them how their day is or you know, um, you know, whether they got cable lately or what the weather's like. I'm asking them, how many fish do you have? And the only reason I want to know that, only reason any fisherman want to know that is to compare, right? Because they'll tell me whatever fish they have, and if we have more, we'll quickly declare it. Yes, we have seven more than you, right? And if they have more, we'll lie, and we have, we have seven more than you. Because we want to compare, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's just asking them a typical fisherman question. Any luck out there? How you guys doing? And here's what happens. They answer him, and they say no. So they told the truth. That's good. So he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Guys, I love it when Jesus gives fishing advice to professional fishermen. So cool. He is a carpenter, but this is what's cool. He knows more about fishing than they know about fishing because he invented fish. And check out what happens. So they cast their net and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. Do you guys want to know what the big difference between doing something on our own and doing something under the direction of God is? Results. Right there, results. They get fish. They've been trying all night on their own. They can't do it. They got nothing. Jesus gets involved, asks them to put it on the other side of the boat. Do you know what the difference between one side of the boat is and the other side? Seven and a half feet. Seven and a half feet. If you're fishing, that's not much of a difference. There's still going to be fish over there. What they did is they followed Jesus' instruction, and they were obedient in that moment. And we can declare all we want. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go get this done, and we catch nothing, and it happens all the time. Friends, I know people who are so diligent and so skilled and competent, but there's more to it than that. There is obedience, listening, leaning into, discovering where God wants you to go, what he wants you to do, and not only that, how he wants you to do it. And in this sense, please hear me, the difference of success and failure was not just seven and a half feet across the boat. It was obedience. It's not much, but it's obedience. And we can trust that God knows fishing better than we do, that Jesus knows life more than we do, and in fact, he knows our lives better than we do. And so we can trust him in that. Verse 7 Therefore, that disciple, I love this, whom Jesus loved, that's how John likes to refer to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. You guys, John figured it out first. John also let us know that he arrived at the tomb first before Peter. John likes to let everybody know in his gospel that he got things done first In this scenario, probably the reason he figured it out is because it had happened a little bit before. When Peter was called into being a disciple, he was was with Jesus and he was teaching from the shore, or from a boat, and then he cast off off the shore and told Peter to throw his nets out in the deep. And when they did, they brought in the biggest catch that they'd ever caught. And John's probably sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, these fish are coming in. And he's reminded like, oh my goodness, this is God. This is the Lord. And sometimes, you guys, crazy things happen in this life, in your life, and in my life. And the only logical, hear me on this, I'm talking spiritual, but I'm saying the only logical explanation for that to actually be the case is it is the Lord. It is the Lord that he's coming through in a way that we never thought he could possibly come through. I was having a conversation with a pastor buddy of mine. And he was talking about how he had a friend who had cancer. And that they were going in to actually do the surgery to remove the cancer. And on doing that and getting the last MRI before they were to actually go in that morning, they realized the cancer is gone. Cancer doesn't just disappear, you guys. It is the Lord in that sense. Where God comes in and he does a miracle where only only God can intervene. It is the Lord. And then watch what Peter does. This is so good. When Peter heard... That it was the Lord, so John told him, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. You have to love Peter's tenacity. You have to love Peter. Normally, when we were to jump in the water, what do we do? We take off clothes to jump in the water. What does Peter do? He gets dressed up for the occasion, right? He gets his clothes on. I don't know if he actually thought he was going to walk on water again. And so he got his best clothes on, but he's kind of in his undergarments because he's doing work, but he gets on a a coat or whatever he needs, his robe, and he dives on in and he swims. He's like, I have to see Jesus now. That's Jesus. I'm going to where he is. And he swims towards Jesus. I love that. Verse 8, here's what happens. The other disciples came in the boat, which is probably the smarter way to go, (laughs) dragging the net. Catch this. They couldn't even get it in the boat. They're dragging it alongside, full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter, here he goes again, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Friends, scholars have debated Articles have been written. Theologians have wrestled with the significance of 153. Oftentimes throughout the Bible, there's significant numbers and they mean something. There's a guy named St. Jerome in the 4th century who said, you know what that is? That was the, the 153 represents the 153 known fish species in the water at the time. The significance of that was that Jesus said to go out in all the nations in all the world, so therefore you caught one of all the fish inside of there at the same time. Some people have said that it could possibly be, uh, you know, th- that many days till Christ comes back, 153. Here Here's what I think, you know, because there's got to be some meaning to this, right? And so I think the reason that there was um, the 153 fish in the boat is because that's how many they caught, right? (laughs) It means somebody counted, right? Somebody's like, one, two, three, be right with you, Jesus, four, five, six, hold on, guys, seven, 153. You want to know why I know they counted? They're fishermen. And I am a fisherman. And there's two things I know when I'm in a boat. Number one, how many fish I have in the boat. Number two, how many fish my dad has in the boat. Because it's a competition, like I told you. Those are the two things I know. They counted because they're fishermen. Plus, I think this is cool. This is just an extra detail, right, that proves or leans to the fact, the evidence that this is an actual eyewitness account. Verse 12, Jesus, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because remember, he's in his resurrected body. He doesn't look the same, but he also is the same. So it's a little confusing. They knew, because of what he did, it was the Lord. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Guys, the details are here are amazing in this part of the passage. It's amazing. I would have so loved to be there number 1. Jesus made a fire. Do you catch that? He made a fire. I don't think he just made it like poof there's a fire. He made a fire. This is so Sweet, because here Peter is jumps in the water. The fire, he God already thought ahead of this. He's gonna be cold. We're gonna warm him up. The fire is already going, but there's more significance to it than that. Catch this. Because Peter, where did he deny Jesus? He denied Jesus in the courtyard of Caiaphas. And where did he deny Jesus at? Right next to a fire. And where does he go next? Jesus invites him to another fire where he's sitting down, forgiven, fellowshipping with Jesus in the morning. That's amazing. Friends, this is where restoration starts, right here. Second thing to notice is Jesus made them breakfast. God himself, the creator of the universe, cooked them breakfast. I bet it was good. It was fish in the morning, but it was good. You may have heard this, in biblical times, to eat with someone meant intimate fellowship. So eating is a theme throughout the Bible, and you you may have heard that. So in the the prodigal son, when the son comes home to celebrate, what do they do? They kill the fattened calf, and they have a celebration, right? What is the first thing we're going to do upon entering into heaven? Some of you have ideas of what you want to do, but do you want to know what we're really going to do? We're going to sit down, and we're going to enjoy a wedding feast, That's what we're going to do. When we take communion, when we remember the Lord on a regular basis, it is also known as a common meal. And that's our way to remember. But what's also, this is so cool, what it also means is that in that time and in that day and age, if someone had wronged you and you sit down to have a meal with them, it is a gesture of forgiveness. How cool is that? For Peter... Peter wronged Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus is like, brother, it's okay. Let's have a meal together. Come sit down with me by this campfire. I took care of it. I know you denied. I know you messed up. But it's all right. I took care of that on the cross. And I'm back. And you're still my friend. How amazing is that? This is a gesture of forgiveness. And if you're just joining us today, like if you just happened to come by, see the sign and figured, hey, I have nothing to do on this great, beautiful sunny Sunday, I'm going to come into this church, right? Maybe somebody brought you, maybe you uh, just came in off the street. If you've ever wondered what God is like, this is what God is like. This right here where he will sit down and have a meal. This is par for the course for Jesus. This is normal Jesus. The number one criticism actually of Jesus throughout the New Testament is this. It is that he sat down and ate with sinners. That he sat down and ate with sinners. You know who else he eats with? Good friends who denied him. He will eat with anybody who wants to eat with him. He says it in Revelation he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, that's any of us, hears my voice and comes, or anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's what Jesus is like. Jesus just wants to sit down and get to know you as you get to know him. And what's crazy is he knows all about you in the, to add their fish to his fish on the fire, Right? He didn't have to do that. He is Jesus. He could have literally instantly created a fish meal sea bass, smoked salmon, fish tacos, whatever, all those wonderful things you eat at breakfast. But he didn't do that. And catch the principle right here. This is a huge principle. Jesus doesn't need your help, but he loves your involvement. He doesn't need your help, but he loves, loves, loves your involvement. He doesn't need your fish. He doesn't need your assistance. He doesn't need anything from you. But he loves your involvement. I don't know if you caught it, but did you see what they were eating for breakfast? Fish and bread. Fish and loaves. What does that remind you of? Another story in the Bible where Jesus fed 5,000 people And why did he do that? He did that. He didn't need anybody's stuff, but he took food, fish and bread from a little boy, and he multiplied it. And I got to imagine that when they're sitting there having breakfast, that some of the disciples are thinking back to that absolutely miraculous moment when Jesus made that happen. And here they are again, and he's asking for their fish. And they're like, well, here's 153, Jesus, here you go. You know, Peter, probably with his tenacity, threw the whole net on side of the fire and whatever. He didn't, but that would be awesome. But Jesus says he doesn't need our help, but he loves our involvement. Verse 15, we finally get to the question that Jesus asked. Finally get to the question. Here it is. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, here it is, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, yes, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Some have wondered is Jesus being cruel in this moment by asking three times? Like he's not listening to Peter. Not only that, is he doing it publicly? Is he embarrassing Peter in front of all of the other disciples? Because here's Peter, hurting, broken, full of regret. We know that he's upset. Talked about him weeping earlier. Why did Jesus make this conversation so public? A couple reasons for that. He's not being rude. He's not being cruel. Number one, Jesus and Peter had already met privately. We know this because of Luke 24, 34. He says, it is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. This was before this actually happened. 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Peter then the 12, then 500 also. And so this conversation between Jesus and Peter about what down, went down has already happened privately. Plus, this is important. Charles Spurgeon says this. He's a famous Baptist preacher. He says, A man's repentance should be as notorious as his sin. Here's what that means. It means Peter denied Jesus publicly. So it is only fitting that Peter would have the opportunity to affirm Jesus publicly. It was a public denial, therefore it is a public restoration. Peter is publicly being forgiven by Jesus in this moment. And so it's not cruel. In fact, it's a great opportunity, and it gets encouraging as it goes. Believe it or not, this is an encouraging conversation. It is a restoration that directly also—this is cool— correlates to the thrice denial of Peter. So, if you recall, Peter denied Christ how many times? 3 times. Do you know me? No. Do you know me? No. Or sorry, do you know him? That's what people were asking him of that. Do you know him? And they're saying, "No, I do not know the man." In fact, the Bible said he even cursed in that moment. "No, I don't know the man." And then yet at this campfire, another campfire, Jesus sitting down and he asked him three times, "Do you love me?" Yes. "Do you love me?" Yes, do you love me? Jesus, you know all things. Yes, you know I love you. Three times Peter uh, denied, three times he's been giving the opportunity to declare his devotion to Jesus. I think this is beautiful. I think and I love the restorative symmetry that, that God is putting together in this place where he's reminding Peter of what he did and then he's restoring him three times fold. Now, if you do study God's word and you have heard people preach on this before, there's much debate around the word love that is being used inside of this passage. It's very interesting. Some people feel like it's not a big deal because the word, there's, there's two definitions that are being used here, agape and phileo, all right? Agape, you've probably heard of that. Phileo, the way I remember it is phileo fish, okay? That's how I remember it, but there's a difference here. Agape is 100% love. So I love you completely. Self-sacrificing love. I I love you. This is how God loves us. No restraints. Phileo is like 70% love, right? It's brotherly love. That's where we get the the word Philadelphia from. So it's I admire you kind of a thing. So some people believe that the wordplay, the potential wordplay here isn't important because these words are switched out throughout the rest of the passage or the rest of the book. But I, I kind of lean towards the latter, that they actually do have some level of significance. So let me explain it to you. Uh, Jesus starts out, here's how the exchange went. Jesus starts off and says, do you agape me, agape me Peter? Do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. Okay? And then Peter sa- or Jesus says, do you agape me? And then Peter says, I phileo you, Lord. And then Jesus, with a turn of events, goes, do you phileo me? And then Peter says, Lord, you know all things. I phileo you. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here's the difference here. There's a play on words. I think that this seems to confirm the change that is happening inside of Peter. Because prior to this, he was brashly overconfident. And now he's turning into the humble confident leader that god wants him to be a couple chapters earlier if you go left just a little bit inside of the book you will see peter declare before jesus and the other disciples lord it doesn't matter if any of these guys fall away or if anybody falls away i will go to the grave with you i will die with you i declare it i agape you that much self-sacrificing love that's what i'm going to do and then he had that opportunity did he not he had that opportunity. Do you know him? Now, I don't know who Jesus is. He saved his own skin in that moment. And so here in this situation, Jesus obviously knows Peter better than he knows himself. And he gives him an opening, a chance to throw out that claim again. Do you agape me, Peter? And Peter is different now. Peter has learned he's a little more self-aware. He's a little more humble a little more emotionally intelligent of his situation and who he is. And he recognizes that there is no point in trying to be overconfident in front of Jesus and these guys again. And so he says, Jesus says, do you agape me? And he says, no, I phileo you. I would really like to agape you, Lord. I really would, but I just proved that I couldn't. I'm working on it. I want to get there. But I phileo you for now, and I'm going to work to agape. And Jesus, which was great because Helena read it a little bit extra. I wasn't going to go into these verses. Jesus confirms that a little bit ago. He goes back down to Peter's level and says, yes, Peter, you're right. You agape me. But guess what? In just a few moments, right, in a, in a, in like in a few years, you're going to have a chance to agape me, right? You phileo me now, you're going to have a chance to agape me because you're going to be crucified in the same manner that I'm crucified in. And so I feel like that's the word play that's going on inside of here. That's what's actually happening. Peter is longing to grow in his love for Jesus. And our hope and my hope is all of us would long to grow into agape love for Jesus where we not just lay down our life for him when push comes to shove or die for him, but we would give him our daily life every day. So the question here, do you love me? was always about restoration. It's about restoring Peter from the denial that he had to the earthly leader of the apostles and the movement that was just getting started. And here's what I want to say. Probably the biggest point I'm going to have is that no one is beyond um, um, restoration. Nobody is beyond restoration. Nobody. None of us. Just because you made a mistake does not mean you're disqualified from ministry. Peter proves it right here. We would have understood it if Jesus would have gone to Peter, put his arm around him and say, Pete, you messed up, man. I'm going to have to move the mantle onto somebody else. But literally, about a week and a half after Peter denied him, Jesus comes up and says, Pete, feed my sheep. I'm going to trust you with the most important thing in the world to me, my sheep. I know you made a mistake but I'm not going to put you on the sideline. Instead, I'm going to put you in front and center. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to care for those who I care about the most. Friends, I'm so thankful for that, that no one is beyond that restoration, that we all can be restored. I'm not joking. Friday, my wife doesn't know I'm going to share this, but I'm about ready to share it. No, don't worry. She's the superstar in this story. Otherwise, I wouldn't tell it. We went and watched Incredibles 2. Good movie, if you want to go see it. Uh, Went to go watch that. Come out of the theater, get in the car. Time to drive out of the parking lot. I'm waiting there for quite some time to get out of there. I got my whole family in there. I got my, well, almost my whole family. So we have my two kids, Percy and Paisley, and then my wife in the front seat, and I'm trying to wait and trying to turn. It's been a long time. Finally, I shoot out there to go across there. There's a car that's on this side who I was legally, he was legally supposed to yield to me. But as I'm turning, he lays on his horn, right on me. Here I am in this situation with my family, beautiful, I'm a pastor, right? I I love Jesus with all my heart. We turn onto the road, he honks his horn, I just thought I'd return the favor. So I honked my horn. I didn't just honk it for a little bit, I laid onto it, yeah. So my wife's little tutor horn, like, beep, I let him know what was going on, right? (laughs) Pulls in behind me, he gets there. I'm like, dude, what the heck? And I have my window open, so I'm like this, driving. He takes his hand and goes, what the heck? I'm like, ho, 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 it's on, right? So being the loving pastor that I am, I slam on the brakes, right on the road, and um, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pray for him. So I open my door, (laughs) and then as I start to open my door, he goes this direction around the other side of me. Well, quickly, I have to shut my door, and I need to go and be with him. So we drive, and I drive side by side with him until we get to a stop where he is stuck. And his window's down, and I look over, and there's my beautiful bride right here, and I roll down her window. <laughs> and I share with him my frustrations of his honking and my legal right away that I had right in that moment. And I used words that I probably, I didn't cuss, but my daughter did ask me what one of the words was when I was all done with the conversation. And I will tell you this, I was very embarrassed of my behavior and ashamed of how I behaved. That could have been one of you that I was talking to in that little bit. (laughs) And that would have been really bad. Oh dude, check it out, it's Chuck, all right. (laughs) Carry on, Chuck drive safe praying for you (laughs) i'm telling you i when that stuff comes up in me i hate it right i was so embarrassed i was bummed for the rest of the day i really was and just like why is that coming out in me still god you've forgiven me i'm not supposed to give in to this frustration and this rage basically it's so frustrating but i'm so thankful I tell you that only to say that no one is beyond restoration. You make a mistake, it doesn't disqualify you from ministry. That is the grace of Jesus Christ is what that is. It is the grace of God, and it is so powerful that God knows you screwed up big time, and he wants you to come, and he wants to sit and have breakfast with you, and at a campfire, and he wants you to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he restores you back into power. Sometimes when people make a mistake in the church, we like to ostracize them or always look through that same light. This is a week and a half after Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He says, feed my sheep. And he does that three times. Feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, feed my sheep. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is amazing. I love this. He's saying, not only are you called to be a fisher of men, a fisherman, I want you to also be a shepherd. And here's what I mean by that. He's not just commissioning Peter to go and catch people He's, and, and take them from their kingdom or fish from their kingdom into God's kingdom. He's also commissioning t- Peter to take care of those sheep, to ca- take care of those people. It is both about salvation, reaching people, and sanctification. It is both about finding those who are lost and helping those who are lost to follow Jesus. It's both of those things. That's what making disciples actually is. And that's what we are actually about. It is completely that. We are supposed to be fisher of men and we're supposed to care for men and tend sheep, fishermen and shepherds, fishermen and shepherds. That's who we are. And that's who we are as a church. Let me end here, land the plane. I'm going to end with the exact question that Jesus actually asked, and and this is where it gets personal. And I'm going to start with the, the verbiage that he used. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? That's the question I ask of you in this moment. Do you love him? Because it starts right there. If you get to know him, I will tell you this, if you truly get to know him, you will love him. He's just that good. He's that great. He's that amazing. If you truly get to know him, you will fall in love with Jesus. And that is step one. And so if you don't know him, I pray, I plead, I beg for you to get to know him and you will love him too. Second question I want to ask you. That's the first. Do you love me? That's the actual question. Now, what did Jesus imply by asking that question? Here's what it is. Are you doing what God gifted and called you to do? Are you doing what God has gifted and called you to do? Because when when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's saying, you don't need to be fishing anymore, Peter. You are forgiven for what you did. And I am commissioning and restoring you to do the work I have uniquely shaped you to do. You hung around me for three years. You are a natural leader. Now take these guys and lead them where I want you to go. Are you doing? Now, some of you are like, well, I don't know what I'm gifted and called to do. Figure it out. Figure that out. Ask Jesus. Spend time praying about that. It is very important that you would figure out what he's called you and gifted you to do. Oftentimes, those are correlated. Oftentimes, those are correlated. But some of you, some of you in here, you know exactly what you should be doing and exactly what you're gifted to do, and you're not doing it. And Jesus is saying to you, he is saying, come on, go and do it. You are not disqualified from serving me. I know you love me. Now go feed my sheep. Go become a fisher of men. What I've asked you to do, no more fishing for fish, Peter. And in your case, no more doing what you feel comfortable doing. Step out of your comfort zone and truly, Go and do what Jesus has gifted and called you to do. No one, no one, no one in this room is disqualified. No one is beyond restoration.